Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. Uh, this week, we are sitting down. We're talking with Jerry Kopeck. Jerry's an adventurer, uh, bike packer, and truly just has like an absolute amazing journey that kind of led him to these big time um, international bike packing trips that we'll dive into. Uh, the thing I really connected with that I kind of wanted to dive in is just this idea of making the most of the time that we are given. Uh, Jerry and his mom opened a hospice in Boulder. And while he was working with patients at the end of life, Jerry kind of learned the value of time. And we'll get into that. I was really interested in that because I think I think at times we we all kind of have a disconnection with um, like death and end of life and, and something that, you know, um, unfortunately will happen to each and every person. Um, and yet we kind of keep it hidden away. Uh, so I was interested in diving into that whole topic with Jerry uh, because he had this unique perspective that not a lot of people have. Um, and then I wanted to see how that kind of intersected with this need of the unknown, with this need of heading out on on these really big adventures uh, that seem intimidating. I mean, even as I talk to Jerry, um, some of these adventures, like it's it's so outside of the what you do on the regular day to day basis, just being all the way across the world and being out in the wilderness. Uh it, it seems like an intimidating thing and it's it's always fun to talk with and really like enlightening to talk with people like Jerry because um, you can kind of see the path, like what led them to, to the adventure that they went on, uh, which is really cool. Um, so I'm super excited to talk with Jerry. Um, he wrote a book called The World Spins By. I'm about to dive into it. Once I finish the book that I'm on currently, so I'm almost through Travis Macy's new book called A Mile at a Time, and I highly, 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 highly recommend it. Um, it once again, like I mean, obviously at this point, I, I I'm sure it's pretty noticeable, but I find like I love the idea of these adventures. But I also I think what in, interests me more is like, what are the human reasons people are going out and doing these things? Um, and if you read A Mile at a Time by Travis Macy, it's all about his family's journey um, with his father, Mace, who's amazing and uh, just one of the greatest ultra athletes of all time. Um, but it's about his father, Mark Macy, getting diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and how the family handles it and how does this guy who's lived these adventures his whole life and taken on all of these big time challenges how does he kind of take on what it's all been training him for really like all we do these adventures they're optional hardships and we do them because we want to kind of train our mind and train our emotions and, and get ready for whatever life throws at us. And when it throws something like early onset Alzheimer's, how does, how does the adventurer who's been trained with all these lessons through all these years, how does he step up to the ultimate challenge? Um, it's fantastic so far. I'm 66% in. Uh, it talks about their time doing the Eco Challenge, which you can check out on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's so good. It's really, really, really fantastic. Travis, uh, I've always enjoyed that guy. He's he's an amazing human being. You can just tell from the minute you talk with him. And so uh, definitely recommend that. So that's a mile at a time. And then I'm diving straight into Jerry's book, The World Spins By. Um, as for me, real quick, uh, just wanted to say, I think I kind of changed the schedule of the podcast. I didn't want to overdo it on interviewing or just overdo it on our film A Long Way From Nowhere. Uh, so basically, I'm going to go every other week. So I have interviews 
still left with Jason Comstock, who's in our movie, and Phil Pinty, who's also featured. Um, I didn't want to put those all out in a row, along with Amy and Mikey's last week, so we're going to kind of do an every other thing um, with that. But I've been completely blown away by the response to the film, so thank you for everyone who's watched it, who's tuned in, who's sent us nice messages, who's you know commented on on posts we're not even linked on which is crazy like there's trail runner magazine wrote up wrote up an article about it and to see the responses to it i mean i've been telling my wife this whole time like i there's no other word other than overwhelmed it's overwhelming but it's overwhelming like the most positive way so thank you all i'm glad you you know kind of received what what we were intending and what we loved so much about about that race and why we wanted to make the film and things like that. So, um, but enough of that. Let's get right into it with Jerry. Uh, this is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 328 with Jerry Kopek. Jerry, how do you say, can you say your whole name just so I don't mess it up in the intro? Yeah, it's Jerry Kopek. I wouldn't have messed that up. I would have nailed that. I would have totally nailed that. Um, it's, a, it's a very Polish name. It's been shortened over the years. I think it used to be Kopachewski. I think my grandpa came over on a boat or something like that. I don't quite know all the story. Do but... you ever do you ever get confused for the Klopex in the American <laughs> classic, The Burbs with Tom Hanks? I love that you went there. My brother and I joke about that all the time. I don't, but uh, I definitely had some similar nicknames growing up as a kid in Michigan. So that was, that was one of them for sure. I have a really good friend. I met her in college, like grad school, and her name was Kayla Klopek. Get out. And the very first words out of my mouth is like, it's like the burbs. And she's like, oh my God, who is this guy? Uh, she's probably like, oh, I'm so sick of hearing this one. Yeah, yeah. Usually I just jump into the intro, but I'm leaving all the burbs talk in because if you are out there and you haven't seen the burbs, it is a <laughs> classic movie. It is fantastic. And it's one of my favorites. So, um, but yeah, welcome everybody. I'm sitting here. I'm talking with Jerry Kopak and I'm psyched, dude. I'm really excited. Like you have a very fascinating story. Um, and you've done some amazing adventures and those two intersecting is just gotten me excited. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's a good lead in, man. I, I hope I live up to that hype. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think I had somewhere I wanted to start for sure. Um, cause like I said, I was just reading kind of up on some of your journey and your adventures and really what led you into this is really the big thing I want to hit on because I think that's amazing. But uh, but I have to ask, this is for my own seventh grade, seventh graders. They're all learning about the Silk Road today, ah. like this week. And so they were teaching me. I was like, hey, I'm going to interview this guy. He's bike packed the Silk Road. What is that? And they started explaining. So can we just start with that adventure? So... I won't say I've done the entire Silk Road, <laughs> but there is a, it came out several years ago. It's called the Silk Road Mountain Race, and it's in Kyrgyzstan. And I did cycle that before the race came into its existence. So it kind of goes, winds its way through the, the Tian Shan Mountains in, in Kyrgyzstan, which, as many people know, is, is a former Soviet state there. And it is just this most amazing, expansive, range of mountains that I've ever been in. You can ride for five days and feel like you've gotten absolutely nowhere. You could disappear and nobody would know that you were ever there. And so for some people that may feel really, really daunting as you're dragging your your loaded bike up and over a 14 or 15,000 foot pass to find yourself over the ridge into some timeless canyon. Ah, to me, I was just always fascinated by what's over the next hill, what's around the next corner. And I think part of it was probably because my dad is a Korean war veteran. And so he was always super strict and it was always my way or the highway. And I always just, was just kind of towing the line of what's possible. And because I said, so wasn't always the good enough answer to me. Like, I know that you're a dad and you maybe have said similar things to your kids growing up. Like why dad? Like, because, and for me, it just never worked for me. I always wanted to know, well, why, why is that? And so having the opportunity to cycle through these remote canyons and mountain ranges in Kyrgyzstan and trace these old lines from the old, old Silk Road trade. 
and just losing yourself in this this vast openness of of nothingness was the most amazing experience yeah i mean if me saying because i said so like <laughs> makes them into like adventurers in the future that might become my answer from now on but i've definitely said it yeah for sure i I've said this many times, like whenever I talk to you, amazing cyclists, bike packers, like there's something just about being on the bike that to me represents freedom. And I see it in my kids and I see it in their eyes whenever we go for a bike ride. It just opens up this door of possibility. Um, did you yeah. have that feeling when you were a kid and you were on the bike or is this something kind of oh, like new? Nah, nah. Ever since I was a little kid, I grew up in, in mid Michigan, little small farm town, maybe 5,000 people. And it was called Eaton Rapids, Michigan. And honestly, if you did a Google search, it would probably, it might show up. Like if you did a search for middle America on Google, <laughs> Eaton Rapids might just show up. It's just this right quaint little middle. town. Yeah. 5,000 people, 170 people or so in my graduating high school class little river running through it. There's an island that we used to buy a loaf of bread after school and feed the ducks. Like just, it was just, it was middle America. And to get anywhere, we would just all ride bikes. And I remember when I got my first, we called them back in the day, we called them 10 speeds, but now we call them a road bike. It's just a skinny tire bike with, uh, with kind of the curvy drop bar handles. And I remember my first ride was maybe five miles out into the country and I'll, into the country means is just outside of our small little town. And it was to my friend's house because he had a pool. And I remember thinking it was just like the biggest adventure ever. So I'd have a pocket full of uh, Snickers bars and a water bottle full of Mountain Dew. And just thinking like, wow, this is the most amazing freedom I've ever had in my life. And so that was probably 12 years old. And you flash forward, uh, I don't know, 10, 20, now I guess 30 years. And it just has really spiraled into this, I don't know, this, this passion, this curiosity that just hasn't been extinguished. Every time I find myself in a place like Kyrgyzstan or Morocco or Israel, the Tibetan plateau, it's just these, these new experiences of curiosity. And it isn't just the mountain ranges that you cross or the deserts. Honestly, it's, it's the connections. It's the people that you meet along the way that really add the, the color to any story. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, so you mentioned the whole idea of like being so far out there that you could disappear and nobody would know. So that seems really intimidating to a lot of people, you yeah. know, and there's something, is it a learned experience or is it something like innate inside of you that like allows you to be okay with that? Wow. That's a good question. Uh, I think it, part of it probably is, yeah. Nature, nurture. Right? I think a lot of it probably is, is a little bit of both. Like I've always yeah. been a curious kid, but then again, going back to my dad, who's this big, lovable teddy bear of a kind of guy, like he would give the last dollar in his pocket to someone he didn't know if it meant that he would starve for the day. I mean, he's that generous, but at the same time, military, there's no negotiation, no democracy in this. It's my way or the highway. And so when you kind of have all these, these ambitions, sort of kind of kept under wraps it just it made me just more and more curious and i'm not going to say that i just launched into my first bike packing trip because you're right yeah. the idea of just disappearing into a remote wonderland or a canyon in, in kyrgyzstan isn't intimidating because it is my first trip was honestly it was in spain i went to visit a friend who was working over in barcelona and i bought a, a 50 dollars bike from the sports recycler in boulder colorado and I bought some panniers and I rode from hostel to hostel or pension to pension over like six days. Yeah. And it seemed, it seemed not as scary, even though there was a language barrier, but somehow I had taken two years of high school Spanish, which would have been at least 15 years removed from that. But at least I had some kind of basis. It didn't feel as terrifying. You could ask where the bibliotheque was. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, of course, Banyo and I mean the basic stuff, right? You so, had like a couple words you could throw around. Uh, of course. Yeah. But it still was intimidating. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Like just to be out there on your own by yourself, like it's, it's, it's something. It's, yeah. it's definitely something more, more than nothing. Well, and I think like even thinking about going bikepacking, like out here in Colorado, like in the mountains, um, yeah. 
there is the factor of like you're like way out in the wilderness you know but then yeah. you add on being in a new country a new culture like completely just in a new experience and it's it does seem to be intimidating which is why i'm really curious to hear about your experiences yeah it uh it is and then throughout my travels like everyone will say that well let's let me i'll take it back I spent my my first real trip after Spain was to Vietnam. I had a friend who I was working with outside of Boulder, and he had moved to Hong Kong for a telecom job. And he messaged me up one day. This is probably back in 2007. He said, "Hey, I uh, I'm gonna take this trip into the mountains of northern Vietnam near the China border. Do you want to come?" And I was fresh off my two year trip, two years removed from my my one way trip in Spain, and I thought, yeah this sounds like an amazing trip. But I remember my dad, of course, being a Korean war vet saying, Hey, don't go there. There was a war there. Yeah. They, they don't, people don't like us there. Honestly, through my experiences there, through my experiences in Spain and China and Morocco, every place that I've been, people are just people. They're yeah. kind, they're generous, they're empathetic, they're helpful, they're curious. And I just, every time I ever had been in a pinch, someone was there to help. And, and I realize that's not always the case. Like if you find yourself say in a Canyon, we haven't seen a person for five days, like you need to be somewhat self-reliant and, and resourceful to be able to know basic bike maintenance. If you get a flat tire or if you break a chain or something like that. But I think once you establish sort of that basic confidence that you can gain just by riding your bike, then I think it, every little bit of confidence, every little bit of small trip that you can take is just only going to further solidify your, your, your path going forward. Yeah. It's kind of like the more you're exposed to being outside your comfort zone, the easier it is to handle it. Absolutely. Right. Spot on. Yeah. Well, so I'm, it's just, I'm curious. Okay. So I want to know this right off the bat, like you're in a new country, you need help, you need assistance. You don't speak the language. Do you have any advice? Like what's like, I'm trying to like, how do you communicate in a way to show people like, Hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm like <laughs> in a, in a pinch of trouble here. Like what can, can I get any assistance? Like, how do you show that? Oh, man, it is, <laughs> it is amazing how far a smile can go to yeah. sort of break down barriers, whether that's in Colorado where we live or in some other foreign country, a smile, Again, people are generally helpful. They're generally kind. They're generally curious. And obviously, charades goes a long ways. You point at your mouth, you're hungry. You point at your stomach, you're hungry. Uh, you, you do your best to try to learn some words. And, and yeah. In many of the countries that I've been in, you know, English is spoken by, I forget, like 25% of the world's population, something like that. It's, it's some rather high number. And outside of, I would say, China, which was almost like a language incarceration barrier. Like nobody spoke English in China. It just they've got a billion and a half people who live in their country and they don't need to learn our language apparently because yeah. they have yeah. enough. But in most places, people will speak a few words of English, even in some remote villages in Nepal or in Morocco. Like there's still going to be some basic English. I mean, I remember when I was in Madagascar and traveling and I had come into this, this tiny little remote village and it was getting ready to just absolutely open the skies op open up and just start monsooning and mudslides everywhere. And I had a tent and I had a camp stove and I could have camped and man, it just, it didn't seem like the right call. So I'm, I'm walking around and this, you know, the, the road through this village is maybe 200 yards long and there's like 16 buildings there. So I'm just talking to whoever will talk to me and they, everyone wanted to help. People started gathering around because first off, no one had seen a guy who looked like me riding a shiny green bike in their village ever. Yeah. And so pretty soon someone asked someone who asked someone who asked someone else who spoke four words of English and said, do you need a place to sleep tonight? And like, yes, that'd be amazing. And yeah. someone invited me into their house and fed me dinner that night. And it was just, it's just this random acts of kindness and this human connection that you discover as you're traveling. Yeah. What, uh, what other commonalities do you find? Like you've been to 18 different countries, bikepacking, like what are the commonalities? Cause I think so often we get kind of fed the story of 
danger and yeah. people who are different than us, we should associate it with danger. And yeah. it's a very harmful story because I'm a lot of the times that's not the case. And I would probably guess from your experiences, most of the time, if not all of the times, it hasn't been the case. So what other kind of commonalities are you finding across like just humanity? Um, curiosity. So I'm, as I've stated, a naturally curious person. I, I'm what I, would, what I would call probably an extroverted introvert. So I'm very outgoing. <laughs> I like to meet people. But at the same time, I still need to sort of come back into my cave every once in a while and recharge my batteries. But people, for the most part, are curious and they they want to connect with you. They want to hear your story. There were times where I'd be riding through remote rural village, whether it's in India or Nepal or Zambia or Zimbabwe or Israel, and people would, some people wouldn't even have cars because it'd be such a remote village. They would just have bicycles. They'd be walking from, from town to, to school and back and they would stop what they're doing and want to come over and talk to me. And the one thing that uh, a lot of people in Northeast India, one of some of the only English that they knew was come here, tea, selfie. And I heard that <laughs> so many times, like they would want a selfie with you because they haven't seen somebody who looked like me riding their bike in their village. And they just wanted you buy me a tea and hear my story. And granted, you know, they would, the extent of their communication was, what is your name? Where are you from? Yeah. Where are you going? Like really basic stuff, which to be fair is more, it's more than the Hindi that I speak or more of the, or of the, of anything else that I speak. So that's good for them. But then it's just a matter of connecting with people and hearing their stories and sh listening to what they want, want to tell me and, and, and sort of echoing back my stories. And it's just like that shared curiosity of connection. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, simple questions and yet it's yeah. the open door for connection yes yeah. the opportunity that you can take absolutely yeah that's amazing man well i want to hear about like what led you into into bikepacking what led you into these big adventures um you know i know that there's a bit of the you know going into corporate america <laughs> and then realizing that that uh, wasn't necessarily the life you wanted to lead. Um, can you kind of go into just that kind of stage of your journey? Yeah, it's uh, for the most part, it's a, it's a story about the value of time and how we choose to spend it. So I was following what I would call sort of this laminated roadmap to success given to me at graduation from business school. So went to college in Boulder, went to, went to school at University of Colorado in Boulder, got a good job, bought a house, even met a nice girl. And honestly, that should have been it, right? It should have been enough to say, I am successful. But at the end of the day, the work that I was doing, it just didn't matter. I was working for the Federal Reserve Bank and I have a finance degree. And I thought, wow, what's the, the highest bank in the country to work for? And it's the Federal Reserve. And so that's what I had my sights set on. And it just, it didn't, it didn't feed my soul. It didn't matter. It was, it was essentially soulless. And then from 2005 to 2015, I had the opportunity to found and run a hospice with my mom. And through working with people end of life, I learned firsthand how precious our time really is. And it wasn't until a couple of things happened to me in 2015 that sort of knocked me offline. And I'm not, I'm not unique. Life happens to all kinds of people. Life happens to everyone, and for that matter. And for me, I had a series of things that happened. I separated from a woman I thought I was going to grow old with, had the death of a really close friend at the age of 45 to breast cancer, and just the collapse of the company, which essentially had been my professional identity for a decade. And so I woke up one day, this all happened probably within a span of, of three months. So kind of like a, a quick one, two, three shots. And I woke up one day with without a partner and without a best friend and without a company. And it was the first time in my life that I just didn't know what I was doing because this roadmap had sort of been, um, had been dislodged and I set off to just go visit a friend down in Zambia. I knew him from high school. And for me, bikes have always been this, this factor, this part of my life. I started saying that bikes always win because they just, they give you this, this perspective, this opportunity for freedom. And I went down to visit him. I thought I was only going to be gone for maybe three or four weeks 
which by Western society, American standards, three or four weeks is a long time to take off of life because most vacations are two or three weeks. But I was given this gift of time and I thought, well, I remember all these life lessons learned from hospice and that essentially tomorrow's not promised. So what should have been a three-week trip turned into nearly two years as I kept meeting people, living by this mindset to always say yes. And as doors opened, I continued to step through. And the way I was able to sort of make that connection was, you know, running a, running a hospice, most of our patients were probably on average 85 to 95 years old. And of course, inevitably you make connections with some of them, but inevitably they ultimately do pass away. And while they're passing, is very tragic, I could somehow make sense of the fact that they lived a long life. And I'd like to believe they lived a really good life. But it wasn't until a really close friend of mine who died at 45 for breast cancer that a light, a light switch kind of flipped on in my brain. And I thought, you know what? We don't go to see our favorite concert just for the encore. We want to see the whole show in its entirety. And so we have this mindset that we're following this map to success, like I was, that we're going to tuck our chin, put our head down and work our asses off until we're 65 years old, and then hopefully start living our best life. Well, I learned out through run, from running a hospice and the loss of a close friend that tomorrow's not promised. So you should start living now. Yeah. And that's kind of how I found my way through all these adventures. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful story. I I want to dive in on a couple parts of it. Um when it comes to like corporate America, because you do hear hear that people get frustrated or or they just don't like they zombie mode it, you know, sure. um, they're not engaged. Is there anything to the fact of like you're disconnected a bit from how it, what you're doing is affecting other like affecting people? You know what I mean? Like you could be doing something really positive. There's a lot of parts of corporate America that are doing things really positive and sure. stuff, but it, there's this disconnect where you're not seeing the people whose lives you're affecting through your work. And I think that'd be really difficult to be able to handle. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to say my path is the path that everyone should take. Not everyone can just take off for a year and a half or two years on their bike. I, I totally get that as a very fortunate opportunity that I had. Yeah. I'm not saying that all corporate jobs are terrible. I'm just saying the work that I was doing, work for the Federal Reserve, working in a telecom organization where we were selling fiber optic uh, cable to, to corporations. Like if I worked a 50 hour week, if I worked a 70 hour week, it, it just didn't matter for me. And so, but at the same time, I think that, Many of us, if not all of us, have sort of been taught that, you know, it's just a job, right? It's not your identity. It's not your purpose in life. It's not your calling in life. It's just a means to sort of sustain your life. And so it allows you to buy your car, to pay for your apartment, to, to go out to eat. Like, it's a job. And I was totally following that path, right? So I would work my 50-hour weeks and hopefully get a, a promotion and with that, a raise, and just keep working my, my way up through my 30s into my 40s. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just for me, it just, I don't know. I, I, I was having a hard time being passionate about the work that I was doing because inevitably I knew that what I was doing just didn't matter. And, and you know, some people can kind of disconnect and feel like, you know, it's just a job. Yeah. But for me, I, I was having a hard time disconnecting. I tried for a decade and it just didn't happen. So I needed to feel like what I was doing mattered. Yeah. And it wasn't well, about money. Yeah. I do think like it'd be really hard to have your job that you're spending 50 plus hours at every week, not somehow bleed into your identity. <laughs> and I'm sure people can do it. Like I'm sure yeah. people can totally keep it separated, but at least for me too, like that would be really hard. Like I'm a seventh grade teacher. And so in my everyday life outside of seventh grade teachers, I am still like looking at like if something happens and it brings about a good lesson, I will yeah. hit my daughters down. Like, listen, here's a good lesson <laughs> about blah, 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 <laughs> you know, or just, you know, so it does, it bleed, it has to bleed over at least for me. Um, yeah. And so I could see that becoming like a big challenge, you know? 
Yeah. And I commend you for your work. I, I, I know that's probably both very fulfilling and rewarding and also has its challenges. So my partner for a long time, she taught in inner city schools in Minneapolis and she taught for Teach for America. Mm. And so she had some very rewarding experiences and also some very challenging stuff. Yeah. And so, of course, you know that I think there's this kind of idea, at least at least when I was growing up, that yeah, let's go and be a teacher because you only have to work for eight months out of the year, <laughs> nine months out of the year, and then you can have all this free time. And like I'm relatively certain from talking to her and people who I know who have been and are teachers that whatever time you have off throughout the summer, like you've already put that time in throughout the year. <laughs> so there's definitely some work out there. That's the bags under my eyes, man. <laughs> uh yeah, dude. Well, it's just curious to me because you go from that which seem seemingly fairly impersonal to now working and running a hospice, which yeah. to me is the complete other side of the spectrum there. Yeah. And to be fair, when I first started the hospice with my mom, and this would have been 2015. And so we'll do a little math here. So I was 31 at the time. And so at 31, I didn't have a whole lot of perspective or mm -hmm. experience with death and dying. And I was still kind of this very tightly wound, kind of sarcastic and cocky kid. Cause that's, I don't know, it's just how I grew up, I guess. And I remember my mom called me from, from, from vacation down in Mexico. And it, well, it wasn't uncommon for her to call me. We're very close, but it was weird for her to call me from Mexico. So of course I answered the phone and she said, Jerry, I know what I want to do. Cause she is the time she wasn't loving her job. She knew that I wasn't loving my job, but they were both jobs. And she said, I want to start a hospice in Boulder. And again, think of me, 31-year-old, kind of cocky, very naive kid. It's like, huh, uh, I don't know that I want to start sort of like a dirtbag hotel for transient backpackers. She's like, what? No, that's a hostel. <laughs> like, oh, what's a hospice? And then she told me, and I was like, oh. Not the same. I don't know. Not the same. <laughs> don't know. And I don't know that that's what I want to do. But the more we talked and the more sort of her vision became my vision. But at the same time, I still wasn't looking at this as my life changing or life altering career path pivot. I was looking at this like, hey, this, this, this could be a, a nice opportunity to work with my mom and do something different that might have some, some real long lasting effects. But it wasn't until what I call the sweet potato that changed my life where I fully, I fully snapped into this mode of like, okay, my, uh, my presence here, there's something bigger out there than me. And what happened is I had just come home from a bike race in Boulder and I was cold. I was, it was raining outside. And so I was just going to throw a sweet potato in the microwave and normally conventional wisdom you you take a, a fork right to you puncture poke, holes in it you just poke away at the sweet yeah, potato and to aerate it so it doesn't explode <laughs> in your microwave right and so for whatever reason like i chose a butter knife instead because that was the closest thing and so i'm chopping down on this on the sweet potato real frantically trying to get in the shower right before that and my hand slides down the shaft of the knife and my pinky finger goes right across the blade of a very dull butter knife <laughs> and nicks a little cut in the base of my finger. And it's like, okay, well, at the time I was, I was running a hospice. So I knew some people in the emergency room. So I called somebody up, went over there, yada, yada. And it's like, Hey, I need a stitch. And I remember the attending physician. She's like, yeah, so you need a stitch and we'll see you tomorrow morning for surgery. So what's that? Yeah. You cut a tendon. If you ever want to use your pinky finger again, and I suggest you do because you're a young 34-year-old man, I'll see you for surgery tomorrow. And so, yeah, I, I had surgery. And of course, you can't do anything because your arms are mobilized. Poor me. You can't ride your bike, whatever. And so I remember I'm kind of moping around the office, basically tripping over my bottom lip because I'm so depressed. And my mom, she's being patient for a while. And after like six weeks of this, she finally pulls me aside. She's like, hey what's going on? You seem awfully depressed, kind of like playing it off. I was like, well, you know, I can't ride my bike and my hand, la, la, la. She's like, listen, what is wrong with you? Do you know where you work? People around you are dying yeah. and you're sad because you can't ride your bike. Knock it off. It's kind of like that proverbial slap that your parent like gives you to sort of snap you out of this, Yeah, I don't know, spasm that you're having. And it's just the first time in my life where I was like, holy crap, like I am, I'm being that person. Like there is a bigger story here than me. 
And that's where I sort of got this big perspective shift. Like, how did I shift from going from this corporate guy to running a hospice and having larger empathy and, and a bigger perspective about life? And that was that was the moment. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because the moments can be little coincidences like that. Yeah. You know, um, but you were open to the like paradigm shift, you know, it sounds like, and you know, moms always help with that. You know what I mean? Like the people in our (laughs) lives can uh, open our eyes to kind of like really view how we're acting in comparison to like the bigger thing, you know, which is amazing. And my mom is, she's all tough love. My dad is tough love. My mom is tough love. And she has this, this expression where she just, I don't think she even realizes it realizes anymore. She just will say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, and it's so funny. And when my, my partner, her and I first dating a couple of years ago, I would say that because, because I probably seeped in from my mom and I would say to her like, Hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? She's like, there's nothing wrong with me. Why would you say that? And then, so she met my mom for the first time last year or a year and a half ago. Yeah. And my mom said that. And then my partner, Christy's like, Oh, now I see where you're getting now, from. Now I know <laughs> why you are the way you are so hard to pull but that's just her that's her personality yeah well so i want to hear about the perspective you gained in the hospice um another disconnect i feel like is a lot of times we in america like we have we just have a disconnect with death you know sure and when you're working in a hospice like you can't escape it that's that's the purpose of the job. Mm. And yeah. so I, you know, you always, there's like articles online. that's like, here's 10 things about that. We learned from people on their deathbed. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I want to hear it from someone who like actually has experience interacting with people, you know, who have lived these long lives and yeah. are now like kind of, you know, at the end or approaching the end of it, like what kind of perspective were you able to gain either from just like being around, like being in a hospice uh, or what kind of perspective did you gain from just like people, like talking to people, like talking to people? So, so many. Uh, The first, and this was important with all of our staff is that humor helps. Yeah. So, I mean, death is heavy. And the staff who work with patients end of life do some of the hardest jobs anywhere in the world, but humor really helps provide some levity. Um, at the same time, like one of our jokes was, and not really a joke, it's just kind of a realization is that we're all terminal, right? I mean, that's just a fact, whether you're 85 and you have end stage lung cancer or whether you're 45 and you're healthy, like we're all terminal. Like, what do they say? Like, no one's getting out if you're alive. Yeah. And it's kind of a cheeky thing to say, but it, it's true. But the, some of the things that I learned from people who are sort of at that place is that one on their deathbed, no one ever said, "I wish I'd have worked more." I'm sure you've heard that <laughs> statement before. Yeah. <laughs> so, but relationships and experiences they they count more than stuff, and that's something that I have really taken to heart. So growing up, going to business school, you think you want to go into banking and I don't know, maybe your, your goals are on a big house and a nice car and a boat. And none of those things are inherently wrong, right? So again, I went to business school. I believe in free will, spend your money however you want. But for me, in my experience, a a new car has never made me happy for very long or a new bike, which is why I still drive the same 18 year old Subaru Outback that I've had for 15 years. And I I just think that experiences, the people that you can share these moments with, I think those are the things that are really lasting in our memory as we look back on it. So, you know, I would ask you, think back about some of your fondest memories. And I was, I was told by a friend who has kids because I don't have kids, but he said, kids really provide almost like a date stamp in your life because you see them growing up in real time and it goes by so fast. Yeah. And you know, when you're a kid, maybe you'll remember the new bike you got or the new truck you got, but pretty soon it's not. It's about the time you went to the zoo or to Disneyland or you went skiing for the first time. It's like, it's those memories that really stick with us and provide a real earmark in, into our development. Yeah, man. I know it's, it is weird. Like having kids, like it's a little bit bittersweet 
because there's that realization all the time, which is like, they're never going to be this young again yeah. and never be this like kid like again, you know? Uh -huh. And, but it is a reminder of like, enjoy it in the moment, embrace it like in the moment, 100% take it into your heart. Um, because at least for me and granted, I'm not great at that all the time. Like, I don't think any parent is, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, these are the things you'll miss. Like my house is a mess, dude. Like you're not seeing the, <laughs> the mess around me, but my house is a mess. And I'm, I'm like, I'll miss that someday. Like, yeah. I just know I will. And yeah, so that's huge. And I'm sure that played a lot with, you know, your adventures moving on. Was there any other kind of big things that stuck out? Like that obviously was like a huge significant time in your life. No, you, you nailed it right there with what you just said. It's you'll miss this when it's gone. Yeah. And when I was traveling through these places, and there's obviously these euphoric highs where you get to the top of this 17,000 foot mountain pass shrouded in prayer flags and in somewhere in Nepal in the Himalayas. And it's amazing. It's sunny, it's warm. And there's other days where it's raining sideways and it's 37 degrees and you're dragging your 60 pound bike up and over this ridge for six straight hours. And you're just like, this is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> but then for whatever reason, like, you know, you, you don't die, you get over the ridge and you find shelter and you get warm again and you have a meal. And it's like this immediate sort of reset. And I started thinking to myself as, as terrible as these moments may seem to be, you'll miss them when they're gone. And I read this quote somewhere that said simply to the effect, frame every so-called disaster with in five months or five days or five years, will this matter? Yeah. And sure, there are certain things that are very impactful, very consequential, but so many of these things that we deem as like traumatic and holy crap, sky is falling. Like, okay, take a step back and it's, it's not that bad. I mean, obviously as an adult, we have the, the capacity to sort of step back and see that perspective. As kids, it's a little bit harder, right? Because we're in the moment and that's how they know is living in that moment. But we have years of experience as adults. I mean, think about the uh, the, the the offline GPS app on your phone. Like you're if you're climbing this mountain and you zoom way in, maybe it's like a, a 20 degree pitch and it's like, this is going to be terrible. And I hope I survive this next climb. But then you zoom way out and you realize like you look at the 10 mile view versus like the 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 yeah. 10 yard view you're like ah it's but like a blip it's like a pimple on the on the whole topography yeah. and so it's kind of that metaphor of like zooming out gaining perspective of man will this really matter in time and most of the time it doesn't yeah i want to kind of think about the idea of like i think something that's beautiful about adventure and I've been trying to explore why adventure is so meaningful for like <laughs> years and years now uh, with so many people. But I think one of the things is that when you think about an adventure, it is impermanent, like it's fleeting, like it's not going to last forever. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful part of it, though, because of what you're saying, where it's like you have to embrace it and you have to love the ups and downs because you have to be able to have that perspective. I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on that. Like, well, and I guess my other thought is basically this, like, you know, let's say you do your bike pack through Madagascar, right? Yeah. That's an adventure. Everything's new. You're taking it all in. Mm. Um, if you move to Madagascar also <laughs> would be an adventure for a while, but after a while you'd get used to the routine, you'd get used to the people that you're interacting with, you'd get used to everything. And now all of a sudden it's life. And yeah. like, I feel like adventure somewhat is life is an adventure but also like adventure is kind of like outside of our everyday you know yeah well so it's that challenge in life right so i feel like routine at some point does become kind of the enemy right we sort of get into <laughs> this this lull right it's like with a job with with life whatever we we get up we make the coffee we go to work at eight we come back at five we do this on saturday we do this on sunday and we repeat time and time again and inevitably like it, it every day can't be fresh every day can't be new but i think it's important if we can to take a step back to take a deep breath and try to live for those those moments and there's moments in every day right so not every day mm -hmm. is just going to be this similar similar monotony 
but you have to look for them sometimes. So it's, it may just be like, Hey, you get up, you take your kids to school every day. You go to work, you pick your kids up, you come home, you make dinner. And like, yeah, that may be a routine, but it's maybe those unique questions, those interactions you have with your kid, like maybe some funny thing that your, your son or your daughter did. And some joke they told you that was completely unique that sparked your day. And so some friends of mine turned me on to this thing called the good stuff jar. And it's, I think it's really clever. And so every time something happens, that's really unique, that makes you laugh, that kind of stops you in your track, my partner and I will, will take a post-it and we'll write it down and we'll stuck it in the jar and we'll date it. And on New Year's Eve every year, we read through them all and allows us to relive all those moments. Because how many times does something amazing happen to you? And in the moment, you're like, God, that's so funny or that's incredible. Look at that sunset. But then two days later, it's it's kind of gone and you forgot what was that joke we were laughing about so hysterically? And I mm -hmm. think if you document it, which is why people journal, which is why people blog, but this is like a really cool, simplistic way just to jot something down in a note. Like every time something unique happens, like your kid makes you laugh, which I'm sure happens all the time. And it's not always just the, the good stuff too. Like sometimes it's like, wow, that was a really hard day, but somehow we got through it. And you can look back on it with this perspective, like see, here's that five month, that five week perspective. Like, yeah, this was, this was hard. And here we are now six months later and life is good. And that was a really cool experience that we got to deal with. Yeah, dude, I'm stealing that. I'm stealing it <laughs> for home. I'm going to steal it so. for our science department at work. I'm going to be like, we're putting this back here because you're right. That. You're so right. There's, even if you are aware in the moment, there's just so much happening all the time yeah. that you are going to forget that little stuff. And, you know, and I know for me with my kids, I'm like, man, I don't want to forget the little silly things they used to say yeah, and, and that right? kind of stuff. Cause when you come across it, like whether it's in a journal or something, when you look back and you see that you're like, Oh man, I remember that. And it makes you feel good. It's like, it's like getting double for, yeah. you know, like you're getting yeah. double there, which is cool. But I want to hear about that then. Um, <laughs> can you, when you're on like a big bike pack, whether solo or whether with somebody, you know, you mentioned the big, the top of the pass and you're surrounded by prayer flags and it's gorgeous and the sun shining and all that. Um, those are like the big moments that, yeah. you know, when you get back and you have to summer, somehow summarize this like three month trip to people, you might bring those moments up, right? Sure. But to you, like, is there any little moments that you can recall that keep drawing you back? So like, is there any like good stuff jar yeah. For the bike packing ventures that you can like that are, were really meaningful to you and you can kind of, you know, think about. Yeah. And you would think that sort of the low hanging fruit of like summoning a mountain pass or yeah. <laughs> forging a river or crossing a desert in Israel, like that's the stuff that you remember. And it is, but it's not, it's not the reason why I travel. And those aren't the things that really come into mind. Like, you know, I have pictures on my wall of that mountain pass in Nepal but honestly, it's those connections with people along the way. And so like I've, I have so many stories where people have just for no, no ulterior motive, nothing to gain, have just gone out of their way to help me. And I remember I was traveling in Israel and this would have been probably four or five years ago. And there was definitely a lot of tension up there, especially in this place called the Golan Heights along the Syria border. And I was traveling up there. And the, the, the wall into Syria is as close to me then as that door is behind you. So like the wall is there and it's very yeah. real. And at the time, I think uh, we had just launched some kind of calculated airstrike into Damascus for stuff that Bashar al-Assad was doing and not to get political. But the point is, is that I was traveling in a, in a very contentious area. Like there's armored up Humvees everywhere. People are walking around when battle fatigues and machine guns. And people didn't look at that as any differently than you would look at someone on the bus with a briefcase in their hand going to work. It was just, it was just life. They're used to it. And so I remember that there's this, there's this Facebook group called bike packing Israel. And I threw a post out there and I said, Hey, my name is Jerry. I'm going to be traveling through the Golan Heights. I'm from the U S I'm on a bike and I'd love to connect with people along the way and maybe find a place to, to camp or hear about things I should see. Cause I'm new over here. 
And I remember I pulled into this little coffee shop and I'd been on the road, probably hadn't seen a shower or a mirror in, in probably four or five days, just filthy, just overall dirtbag mode. And I pull into this little cafe, seriously on the border. And I walk in to get some water from the guy behind the counter. And before I could say anything, he kind of cocks his head and looks at me and he says, are you Jerry? Like, what? Like, okay, yeah, I'll play. I'm Jerry. He's like, hey, you need a place to stay tonight? It's like, yeah, I do, because we're in a border zone and there's you can't just pitch a tent here. So yeah, <laughs> yeah where where can I stay? Is there someone, I don't know, what are my options? He's like, hold on a second. Goes into his pocket, pulls out his mobile phone, dials up a number, hands it to me. The guy says the other line, it's like, hey, Jerry, uh, if you need a place to stay, give me your phone number. I'm going to drop a pin on your phone, follow it to my house. I'm not there. I'll be back in a week or so. Stay as long as you want. And if you're there and I'm there when I get back, great. If not, safe travels. Oh, and by the way, do you need the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> I was like, what? Like, so this guy who I never met, yeah. never would meet, allowed me to stay in his house and didn't say, hey, just drop 50 bucks on the counter. But I'm just nothing. It's like, hey, go and be there. And you didn't have to do that. Like there was nothing in it yeah. for him. And that had been my experience dozens upon dozens of times through my travels in different countries where people gave because they wanted to help, not for yeah. any other reason. I love that, man. Like I said, there's so much out there saying that people are bad and this side's bad and that side's bad and this is why yeah. and you should fear them and you should be angry at them. And Stories. I mean, it's funny, man. Like I think uh, my friend Paul said it best. best. He's a... Uh, he's a writer and he's like for writing there has to be conflict and how yeah. it seems like so much these days is based on entertainment and try to get people's interest and things uh, like that and so it's yeah at times it's, it's conflict and a lot of times it unfortunately like becomes real you know like it's almost yeah. like manufactured to be somewhat entertainment for people to keep them clicking keep them coming back yeah, uh, but then yeah. it becomes real. And that's to me, I'm like, what a terrible, like, I don't know. To me, I'm like, I want to be a little voice of goodness in. Yeah, I like in, that. You might as well. Like if we have enough people showing what we've actually witnessed, what we've actually experienced, which is that people are good and people are yeah. kind and people will help each other, then that can be powerful. Yeah, I, I think that through all the countries that I've biked through, the countries I've visited through my life, and this is just my experience as, as a white male. Uh, I can't speak for anybody else, but people have asked me, hey, were you ever afraid in Israel or Madagascar or Montenegro or Morocco or Turkey, any place else? And the answer is emphatically, no, not for, not for one second of one minute of, of any day. And everyone that I had met had been truly kind, truly curious. And it was crazy because it seemed like the people who had the least gave the most, which I thought was a really odd paradigm. So I, I or a paradox. And I just, it, 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 it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I could be in the most remote rural villages in China on the Tibetan plateau or in a village, like I mentioned in Madagascar and people were just, they were over the top kind. And so I think people for the most part are good. I think, governments for the most part can be crazy. And, and I think if we kind of get sucked into some of the news and the stories where we're creating winners and losers and, and those people, it can definitely create stories in our minds. So like if I, if I didn't go to Israel, if I just watched the news, whatever news station that is, I might've seen all the chaos over there. And I'm not going to say that there's not chaos over there, but there's, there's chaos in the United States too. So I remember my dad asking me, he's like, Hey, I don't think you should go to Israel because of all the conflict over in the West Bank or in Palestine. And I was like, hey, dad, uh, there was a shooting in Grand Rapids, Michigan yesterday. People probably shouldn't come to the United States. He's like, yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I want to hear your thoughts kind of like to start wrapping up, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. And I can't remember if you had this on your website or if <laughs> I think you did. I think actually it was in one of your blog posts uh, about the Silk Road experience, which by the way, you should all totally go to Jerry's website because he has some amazing stories. I got through a few of them today, but I was psyched that I found this like 
gem of me oh, being you. able to do do these uh look into these stories but but it's the idea of like you're out there and you know you've your roadmap was dislodged and you have this freedom available to you which yeah. props to you you embraced it because i think yeah. sometimes that happens and people don't embrace it um but you were able to embrace it in a healthy way for yourself you know like i'm sure that looks different for everybody but um but it's the idea of like you're out there seeking the answers to life <laughs> but also knowing Sounds that you're big. never yeah right but you're <laughs> never gonna quite get them you know what i yeah. mean it's like yeah. i'm out there seeking but i'm not expecting to actually become enlightened like to reach enlightenment or whatever you know what i mean <laughs> I am. Uh, I, I did not uh, go to a Buddhist monastery and never leave. Yeah. I did visit a bunch, and I did meet a lot of Buddhist monks through Nepal and China and places like that. But yeah, as as far as as perspectives, I, I think I'm a curious person. But I think most people are curious. They all want to know, like, what's the secret of life? And everyone's trying <laughs> to figure out what's that one thing. And you had you had mentioned uh, a movie reference earlier. And there was this movie, I think it was called City Slickers, and it had Billy oh. Crystal in it and, and Jack Palance. Top 10. And, Sorry. And, and, <laughs> and Jack Palance was this kind of old, crusty cowboy. And, and Billy Crystal was kind of going through this sort of, I don't know, midlife crisis. And he goes on this adventure with a couple of his friends. And they, I don't know, they go and like steer cattle or something like that or drive cattle. And this old, crusty guy, Jack Palance, and he's like, you know, the secret of life is one thing. And Billy Crystal's like, well, what is it? And he's like, that's for every person to figure out. Like, what's that one thing that that makes life living worth living? Like, what's that to one you. thing that get that gets you out of bed every yeah. day? And yeah. whatever is it is for me, it's not going to be for you. It's not going to be for someone else on the street. But for me, it's it's about experiences. It's it's about connections. And the more the more things I experience, the more people I meet. The more people I hear their stories, the more people I share my stories with, like it becomes addictive. Like I, I can't, I can't get enough of it. And so, I, I'm, I'm, I'm continually just drawn towards that. And there was this other quote that I came across. I don't know where it's from, but I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase and summarize it for you. But it goes something like this: Every person has a time bank. And each day, 86,400 seconds are deposited into your time bank. No one will tell you how to spend it. Time misspent won't be refunded. One day you'll go to your time bank and you'll find that it's empty. And it'll be at that moment you know the answer to this question. Did I use my time well? And so that's kind of been my driving mantra for, for years now since I had that sweet potato incident. And since my friend Cynthia passed away of breast cancer, you know, we're all going to have loss throughout our lives. We're all going to sort of get knocked down and we can't control that, but we can control how we respond to it. Do you get back up after that adversity? And one more of my famous, my favorite quotes, and this is way off the subject matter, but I'm a guy who grew up in mid Michigan in the eighties. And so I grew up watching Mike Tyson just because it was, it was entertainment, right? It was like watching a circus every day. And I remember one time, maybe you know this quote where I'm going with this, but I remember that the reporter or the interviewer was asking his opponent, okay, so Mike Tyson's undefeated. How are you going to beat him? And the fighter was like, well, you know, I'm going to throw a few jabs, work the body, whatever. He had a plan, right? And then the reporter turns the microphone to Mike and he's like, hey, Mike, what do you think about that plan? And his response was, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so I know that's a little bit rough, but I think the metaphor is there, right? Like we all have this plan, these goals in life. Inevitably, life is going to happen. Yeah. How do you respond when things don't go your way? Yeah. No, I love that, man. I think this is, that's a great way to, to wrap it. One, because <laughs> right. you mentioned City Slickers. <laughs> Genius movie. Uh, somehow a genius movie because I watched it as a kid and I was like, yeah. it's a cheesy comedy. I don't like cheesy comedy. And now I'm like, did city slickers define my life? Like going yeah. on adventures, having conversations with people <laughs> like that's what that movie is. For um, sure. I love it, man. Well, hey, I wanted to mention your book. I just ordered oh, okay. it uh, yeah. today. I'm psyched for it. It's called The World Spins By. 
uh it's about your bikepacking adventures great title by the way um yeah. yeah so i'm excited to dive in and uh yeah i i i would love to have you back on the podcast i'm sure we could talk for hours and hours oh we could sure because we didn't even talk about all the stuff that you're working on right now and that's a whole nother story because you as i mentioned earlier you bought the last book in my stock i have a new supply coming so perfect timing <laughs> and the book isn't just about some guy in his 40s riding his bike in faraway places. I, I've read those books. To me, they're not that interesting. There's a much deeper thread there. There's a deeper storyline. And it does talk about growing up with my dad as a Korean War veteran, trying to find this laminated roadmap to success through corporate America, being disenchanted by it, running a hospice, learning a bunch of important life lessons, mostly just how short and finite life really is. And then how all those lessons learned from running a hospice became lessons lived out on the road. And so that's that's kind of like the uh, the quick five-second or 25-second pitch on what the story is about. Yeah. So I, I hope you enjoy it. And I do want to come back because I did just watch your film yesterday, and it's fantastic, and I have so many questions about it. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Um, Jerry, where can people kind of follow your journeys, your future adventures, all that stuff? www.jerrycopack.com, K-O-P-A-C-K. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome, man. Well, let's, uh, let's reconnect for sure. Yeah, man. I appreciate the time. All right. That wraps up this week's episode. Um, pretty sure I said the word adventure, like 382 times in that one. So, uh, so hopefully you didn't turn that into some sort of like game or something, you know, <laughs> like, uh, every time he says adventure, uh, take a drink. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Bad idea. I say adventure too many times. Uh, I'll say awesome a lot. And, uh, yeah, man, those two things. That's what you realize when you put together a podcast, you realize all the little things that you say all the time. And part of my brain's like, are you going to change that? And then the other part of my brain says, no, that's truly who I am. I say adventure a lot. I say awesome. And I say dude a lot. But anyways, <laughs> uh, huge thanks to Jerry for coming on the show. I was psyched for many reasons. Like I said in the intro, it's I'm really excited to dive into his book. Um, and I think like finding this meaning, finding this purpose, you know, partway through life and really, really the way people find that meaning and find that purpose and the different paths that we all take. Uh, I love that, but I also can start to see these similarities in the paths, right? And one of the similarities is like, life's not easy. Life's gonna throw you curveballs. Life's going to um, kick you right in the jaw sometimes, you know, and what is our response to that? How do we keep on going? You know, how do we keep putting one foot in front of the other, which is why an endurance event, you know, is such a beautiful analogy for that. You know, when an endurance gets, uh, when an endurance thing gets hard, you just got to keep going. You got to do the next pedal. You got to do the next stroke in the rowboat. You got to keep going. You got to just slowly put one foot in front of the other and just keep on going you know um and when you do that but you also embrace the moment because you know you're not getting this time back and sometimes on these things like you know you're never going to be back in this place again you're never going to be back on this trail you're never going to be back on this road um you know, you're experiencing this very unique situation every single time you're out in it, on an adventure, even if it's something you've, you know, like I'll go run the same trails by my house and I've climbed the same mountain a handful of times and, you know, and, but every time's different and every time is a different experience. There are different challenges, different things you have to adapt to, but also different states of mind you're in different stages of life and you can draw meaning from all of that if you actually are seeking it out so uh yeah i love talking with with jerry it was amazing um he's a really good dude and i love just kind of like hearing about some of these things and some of the ideas that he's been able to formulate based on 
kind of putting himself out there. So, uh, yeah, so definitely uh, check out his book, The World Spins By. Um, like I said in the intro, A Mile at a Time by Travis Macy and uh, and Mark Macy about Mark's early onset Alzheimer's and how the family, you know, keeps on keeping on with it. Uh, it is very, very, very good very heartfelt you can i can feel travis and his spirit like as he's as i'm reading the book like obviously is this book he poured his heart and soul and passion into so um check that out and uh yeah got a couple great book recommendations on this one this is awesome so uh yeah that'll wrap it up for this week next week we'll be back with jason comstock if you watched our film um jason uh he went through the ringer during the desert rat stage race uh the year we were out there um as does everyone but jason seemed to uh to experience a little more adversity as it pertained to his feet spoiler alert um but yeah so come back for that it'll be super fun we actually i've been waiting to do that episode forever because i wanted to talk with him about when he came back in 2022 i wanted to hear about that experience i got to be out there the last day of it um but i wasn't out there the rest of the week so i was very excited to kind of just hear about that experience finally you know hear about how the rest of the week went for him and and all of that so uh yeah that'll wrap up this week and uh we'll get back at you next week